0: Coming up on Tech Nation, we stayed home just as we were asked, and we avoided in-person doctor visits. We also missed some medical tests, even for newly suspected problems. What impact has it all had? I speak with Dr. Harvey Kaufman, the Senior Medical Director of Quest Diagnostics, about what Quest has found. Then with millions suffering from lower back pain, osteoarthritis, knee replacement surgery, and more, Mike Clayman, the CEO of Flexion Therapeutics, talks about what you're working on. All this and more, coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five, with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
0: In 2014, I was able to speak with Ed Catmull, then president of Pixar Animation and Disney Animation, and the author of Creativity, Inc., overcoming the unseen forces that can stand in the way of true inspiration. I asked him to go back to 1995, to Toy Story, the very first animated movie entirely created on a computer. I asked him, how much was that a technical breakthrough? And how much was it a matter of Hollywood finally trusting technology?
2: Well, it wasn't Hollywood embracing technology. Uh, What it was was a group of people off to the side, outside of the system, uh, working for 20 years to put all the pieces together together Uh, which were initially largely technical. But there was one exception in that Hollywood community, and that was George Lucas. But he truly was an exception. Uh, And so we were located an hour away from Silicon Valley. We're also an hour plane ride away from Hollywood, where George gave us the support in a fairly unique environment. So in our case, it was a little bit of the technology... There was the storytelling part, there was Steve Jobs being involved with it, and there's a, a rather unusual combination, but not coming out through the normal course of Hollywood.
0: This is really sort of a unique way of developing story.
2: Yes, there's a different model. In fact, I would say that for the long form of filmmaking today or storytelling, there are three different models. There's the one that you see on television now where, where you know some of these programs are really very good. And you've got story teams and writers that stay together over an extended period of time, which I think adds to the quality. There's the live-action model where groups go off and they they, they form to come together to make a, a, a film. But then at the end of the film, they disperse. So you don't have any real sense of community on the film. And there's a more a, a random nature to whether the films are good or not. And, and then at at Pixar, we came up with our own model – which is that the filmmakers all stay together at the studio and form a long-term community, and they are a support and help group for each other as they help each other on other on their other films. Uh, and for me, it's a great model so that Andrew, Pete, or Lee, they'll work on their own films, but they'll spend time on other people's films, and it's the fact that they're supporting each other, which enriches them and, and helps draw people out of getting lost in their own films.
0: It kind of put, makes it a storytelling enterprise, and some of the output along the way happen to be films.
2: Oh, very much so. It's this, uh, Storytelling is the way we communicate with each other. And you go right from when you write, read to your children. It's, of course, movies and television, but it's also news. It's our human way of communicating. And there are ways of, of having the form of communication, but ultimately what you want is to connect with people emotionally in order to really connect. And in fact, one of the issues for us was having succeeded, and, uh, and I would say this is true even in Silicon Valley, a lot of these teams, after they succeeded, start to fall apart. So you just think about all these companies, whether they're internet or computer companies, they're very successful, they make a major impact, then something goes wrong. So while they stay together longer, ultimately there are some forces that come in and undo them. And so the central question for us is, if these forces are at play at all times, and I think they are, including here, then how do we pay attention to them so that we can at least address the problems that arise whenever you're doing something new?
0: This 2014 Tech Nation interview with Ed Catmull, then president of Pixar Animation and Disney Animation, talks about his only book thus far, Creativity, Inc. In 2018, Ed Catmull retired from Pixar and Disney, and during his tenure, Pixar produced such films as Finding Nemo, Cars, The Incredibles, Brave, Finding Dory, and *Coco*. His work has been recognized creatively by numerous Academy Awards and technologically by the John Van Neumann Medal. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
1: 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.
0: From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, what about those medical tests we simply put off while we were asked to stay at home? Dr. Harvey Kaufman, the Senior Medical Director of Quest Diagnostics, joins me to talk about what their data shows and then some creative efforts for pain relief of such conditions as osteoarthritis in the knee, and even surgeries such as knee replacements and bunionectomies. Mike Clayman, the CEO of Flexion Therapeutics in Burlington, Massachusetts, takes us through what they have in clinical trials. Technation is underwritten in part
3: by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business
0: can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Harvey Kaufman. Well, Dr. Kaufman, welcome to Tech Nation.
3: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: Now, many more people have come into contact with Quest Diagnostics than people who can tell you, hey, this is what Quest does. (laughs) How how can that be? How can people have come into contact with Quest and not even know it? Yeah, Quest Diagnostics
3: is, is everywhere. We are the largest provider of clinical laboratory testing in the United States. Many patients have their blood or other specimens collected in a physician's office or in a hospital or in a clinic, and then those are sent to Quest Diagnostics. In other cases, patients come to one of our more than 2,100 patient service centers, and we now have locations in some Walmart locations and expanding there and other drugstore chains so that there's an opportunity to access Quest Diagnostics in many ways some people know about and some are sort of hidden because there's a doctor or a clinic or hospital in between.
0: That lab where you go in and they take a whole lot of blood and and other specimens, as we say, where does it go? Well, there's a good chance it'll go to Quest.
3: Yes, we have operations across the entire country. One of the interesting things with this pandemic is I looked, I think, at the beginning of July of 2020 to see where the specimens were coming from. And indeed, we had specimens coming from counties representing 99.9% of the U.S. population. And of that remaining 0.1%, many of those counties were in places like South Dakota, North Dakota, Wyoming that were sort of hit later in the pandemic.
0: Now, with all these tests, Obviously, with COVID, Quest had to be developing uh, a test for the virus and for the antibodies. You did that, right?
3: Absolutely.
0: So the experience
3: was more like we were like firefighters, and we were trained for years after years to wait for this fire, which never came until the pandemic. And it was like the opportunity to respond to a 10-alarm fire. And so we had help from lots of different folks. Remember, the CDC stumbled early on with the assay that they had, and they were critical to our success in launching our assay. Assay being a test. Yeah, because they recognized that the pandemic was bigger than they had initially, and and all of us thought initially. And so they solicited the support of independent clinical laboratories to fill in and to provide the support that the nation needed. We also reached out to uh, some interesting um, places. One was the Global Diagnostic Network that we helped establish a couple of years ago that was developed in part uh, so that we could better respond to infectious disease threats around the world. And one of those partners was the Green Cross Laboratories, GC Laboratories, based in Yeongin, uh, South Korea. And so they provided us non-infectious, extracted RNA from SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, and that was used to help validate the assay, the molecular assay for SARS-CoV-2. We also depended upon the CDC. Um, In our more than 50 years of history, we've never worked closer and better than during the pandemic uh, with the FDA. Uh, So the FDA was key in terms of helping us Bring reliable test methods to the market. And the CDC was very helpful in terms of sharing the base method probes and the primers that were necessary to set up these molecular tests. Uh, and we continue to work with the CDC, continue to work with the FDA, with the CDC. We're doing community surveillance uh, using the serology assay, the antibody assay. We're doing population data analytics uh, on a daily basis. And most recently, we're collaborating with the CDC to provide whole genome sequencing to better understand the spread of the variants. So, to bring up the test, we also worked closely with many of the companies that produce the instruments and the reagents, the supplies needed for performing the test. And those include the the Roche and Hologic and Thermo Fisher and Hamilton Robotics, they all worked tirelessly to deliver the necessary supplies and the the equipment that was needed. And they provided 24-7 support um, because we couldn't wait till like Monday morning, 9 a.m. for service calls. So they were there all the time so we can meet the demand. One of the issues that came up, early on was there just wasn't enough swabs in the country. Now, the leading swab manufacturer is a company called Copan. I like their name. It comes from the words collection and preservation of analysis. I like how company names sort of come together. And they're based in Italy. And if you recall, one of the early surges, the early surge was in Italy. And a lot of the manufacturing is in China and that's where the virus first spread. So the manufacturing base in China and Italy was shut down. And so the number of supplies that were available to perform tests was extremely limited. And so we worked with companies across the globe. We worked closely with a sourcing group that we have in Shanghai, China to obtain laboratory supplies. And we worked everyone and everywhere to get those swabs and reagents, the the supplies needed to perform testing.
0: How hard can it be
3: to build a swab? It's more difficult than one thinks. Um, There's several different components. There's the stick part. um, And to get into the nose, uh, one needs something that's flexible. Whereas a throat swab, one wants something very solid. There's the end of the swab, uh, and there's dozens of different materials that absorb the mucus and the cells and the material that we're interested in in different ways and finally there's well, there's two more there's the fluid that helps preserve the microorganisms, the viruses, and the bacteria of interest, and then there's the container and there was a shortage of all of those parts, and they all needed to come together for testing to proceed. So in order to scale up testing, In a setting of short supplies, the ability to pool specimens would increase our ability to perform more tests more quickly. So pooling is we take four specimens from four different people and perform the four tests together as if it's one specimen. If the pool of four specimens is negative, then all four are resulted as negative non-detection of SARS-CoV-2 but if any if that pool is positive then we test each of the specimens individually and then report out those four individual results now one of the questions is what happens to the sensitivity and by definition it drops by a factor of 4 with SARS-CoV-2 there's a tremendous range of Number of virus particles in a specimen. And we did extensive testing in many, many thousands of specimens to figure out if we were going to make any specimen that was positive into a negative by pooling. And the answer was no, that the test was still sensitive enough because we started with a very sensitive test that we didn't lose anyone. So Theoretically, it's possible, but in our experience in the early trials, there was no impact on loss of sensitivity.
0: The idea that you can take tests from people across the United States and do says that when you look at your data of who's taking what tests, you get a really good picture of what's happening in the country.
3: Absolutely. Um because of the large footprint of Quest Diagnostics, we were able to derive insights in terms of who was getting tested, the positivity rate, and make it fairly granular. And we also looked at relationships with other tests, such as the relationship with SARS-CoV-2 with levels of vitamin D, relationship with things like blood group ABO and RH, uh, and many other tests to look at trends and how this was impacting the health of the country. One of the key differences in the Quest Diagnostics data from others was the rec- is the recency of our data and that we have access to data that's basically one or two days old uh, versus what is typical in public health, which is that the data is available many months, quarters, or even years after the fact.
0: So you know what's going on.
3: We know what's going on in real time.
0: You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Harvey Kaufman, the Senior Medical Director of Quest Diagnostics. At the same time, you know, a lot of us were afraid to even leave our homes. The idea that we would go in and do our routine doctor visits, or, or it would even have to get pretty bad before we'd even called the doctor. I mean, were you able to see any of those trends?
3: Absolutely. So we saw it in two different ways. One is we did a Harris Poll survey that we can we commissioned the Harris Poll to do a survey. They're one of the most respected and long-lasting surveys of American attitudes and views. Uh, and we relied on them to survey over 2,000 adults in November of 2020. And what we found confirmed what a lot of us felt, which was that there was a lot of us uh, that were deferring and skipping care. Indeed, the survey found that 60% of American adults skipped at least one in-person medical treatment or appointment during the pandemic. And among those, uh, 53% over half delayed treatment um, due to fear of exposure to the virus. Now, two out of five Americans were concerned that they may have a Current undiagnosed health condition. So it wasn't just people skipping care who felt good. There were a lot of us who knew something was wrong in some way and still were not going to the doctor. And of those with a chronic health condition, which is two thirds of America, one in three felt that their condition got worse during the pandemic. So not only were we skipping the routine care for when we're feeling good, but a lot of people with health issues in health conditions were skipping care as well.
0: Do we know who was skipping the care? Do we have any sense for that? Or is it just everybody across the board?
3: Well, it's fundamentally everyone across the board. The Centers for Disease Control and many others early in the pandemic uh, asked us to wait for all routine care, non-urgent care, so that we could direct the healthcare services to the people who needed it most, which was at the time, people with COVID-19. They were showing up in hospitals and clinics and other facilities needing care And a lot of those early cases uh, led to hospitalizations and ICU admissions. So it was appropriate at the time. Uh, so it was everyone. But if we, we progress further in time into the summer, what we see is that there were more younger people who skipped care and, interesting, uh, more people of minorities, particularly Black, non-Hispanics, and Hispanics. Um, they were more fearful um, of getting COVID-19. They were had less access to care. They were more vulnerable in many ways because of the Jobs that are are of higher proportion in that population, uh, in the communities in which they live.
0: Now, I was looking at some of the data that was provided about Black Americans and Hispanic Latinx Americans. I was struck by the fact that seventy nine percent of the Black Americans and seventy one percent of the Hispanic Latinx Americans believed that doctors would not do everything they could if they had contracted COVID uh, compared with uh, white Americans. I mean, that is, that's a strong reaction. That's nearly three out of four in both cases. Correct. And there's longstanding
3: uh, racial inequity in the United States, and there's strong, uh, attitudes that develop at an early age and persist. And it is based on real world experience that um, care is different in different communities based on one's socioeconomic and racial um, makeup.
0: Now you're not just doing COVID testing or health trends in the COVID era, uh, specifically related to COVID. Uh, Some of your studies have been going on for a long time. Uh, and you're able to see the COVID impact very clearly. I know you've been looking at that scourge of the baby boomers, hepatitis C, for a number of years. Uh, What's happened in testing in that regard?
3: So we've been collaborating with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, for eight years uh, in the Division of Viral Hepatitis, looking at um, trends in hepatitis. 2020 was a special year uh, as it relates to hepatitis C. Um, One is, it's the year that uh, the Nobel Prize for the discovery of hepatitis C was awarded to Dr. Harvey Alter and Michael Howden and Charles Rice. It was also the year that the United States Preventive Services Task Force and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention revised their guidelines and urged that most adults and all pregnant women in each pregnancy get tested for hepatitis C. Um, so those are those are two key landmarks. In addition, the World Health Organization set a um, high bar, trying to eliminate hepatitis C by the year 2030, and, and now supported by the
0: CDC as well. Eliminate, eliminate it altogether.
3: Eliminate. The the goal for 2030 is to treat 80% of those who are eligible and decrease infections by 90% and decrease the the liver-related deaths. Um, But it would make a tremendous progress towards uh, making hepatitis C history. During the pandemic, we went ahead and looked at trends of hepatitis C testing. And in addition, we looked at hepatitis C drug prescriptions used to treat hepatitis C. The reason elimination is possible is because we now have one of the great discoveries in medicine, which is of drugs that can effectively eliminate and treat hepatitis C infections. In the United States, there's 2.4 million Americans who have hepatitis C. Uh, That's twice as many people than have HIV. There's more people who die each year from hepatitis C than HIV. And we have drugs to treat hepatitis C. So it's front and center, and the more people who we can test and treat, uh, the closer we can get to elimination.
0: We always think of this as a baby boomer problem, that the baby boomers had were very uh, profligate in their youth, and then it didn't show up until they got to their 50s and 60s. Right. So it can take 10 or 20
3: years or longer to go from infection to having... Um, one of the complications of hepatitis C. So it doesn't show up till later in terms of the liver damage and the cirrhosis and potentially even liver cancer. The younger generation um, has the same issues, but in addition, there's high use of injection drug use in, in the younger population. And because we don't know who's related to whom and which ways, it's safer to go ahead and ask everyone to get tested at least once. And those who have symptoms to get tested, and those who are pregnant to get tested in each pregnancy.
0: What are we seeing in terms of epistatis C? And so,
3: what we saw was that in the early parts of the pandemic, which means the end of March into April, we saw 60% or greater declines in testing. Testing bounced back close to the pre-pandemic levels, meaning the 2019 levels, in the second half of 2020. But hepatitis C confirmed cases by testing were still down by 40% in July. And hepatitis C treatments, the drug prescriptions, were still down about 40% in July of 2020. So we increased testing in large part because of the new guidelines, but we're still missing lots and lots and lots of people who should have been tested who didn't. So we need to bring these people back in some way.
0: I feel the same way about cancer. I mean, uh, a diagnosed delayed could be fatal, and if people are not going to the doctor because they suspect something may be wrong, uh, or could be found in routine testing, um, that's that's essentially a a very bad situation. Obviously, are you seeing cancer testing Dan?
3: Absolutely, and um, we had a study that was published in JAMA that looked at the impact of the pandemic on newly identified. Patients with six types of cancer. And we showed that early in the pandemic, it was down 46% compared to baseline, um, primarily 2019. So, dramatic declines and other data from other sources indicate that screening for breast cancer, meaning mammograms, colonoscopies, and cervical cancer screenings, were all down 85 to 90% at the uh, Nader, which is April of 2020. That's when the, the, the least amount of screening was occurring in the United States. It bounced back um, in most cases close to baseline, but there's still this large gap of people who did not get tested. We project that there'll be an increase of cancer diagnoses in 2021 and beyond. Dr. Ned Sharpless, who's the director of the National Cancer Institute, Um, and others at the National Cancer Institute developed a model to figure out what will happen. And what they project is that although we've seen years of decline in cancer deaths, that in the next 10 years, we are likely to see increases in cancer deaths because of the skipped and delayed care during the pandemic.
0: I've been speaking with Dr. Harvey Kaufman, the Senior Medical Director of Quest Diagnostics. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of TechNation are available at NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at TechNation.com. In the second half of our show, Mike Klayman, CEO of Flexion Therapeutics, talks about localized pain relief for such conditions as osteoarthritis in the knee and joint surgeries of many types. Stay with us. We'll be right back. back. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Dr. Harvey Kaufman, the Senior Medical Director of Quest Diagnostics. Now, one of the discussion points that has come along with COVID has to be with contact tracing. Uh, are we invading people's privacy or are we doing them a really good service by saying, in the public health sense, by saying, you've come into contact with people who have been contagious or have been uh, infected with COVID. Um, you know, we've been doing contact tracing for forever, it seems, in such cases as gonorrhea and chlamydia. Um, have we learned anything from that contact tracing uh, with the emergence of COVID?
3: Absolutely. So th- we used to call them disease interventional, intervention specialists, and they, they're still called that. Um, and they are uh, individuals who are trained to uh, track down the sexual contacts of people with sexually transmitted infections like chlamydia and gonorrhea, which is the first and second most reportable diseases in the, in this country. And they're, they've been growing uh, for six consecutive years in terms of the number of people infected each year in the country. And so these people are very effective at... N- tracking down the sexual contacts and encouraging those individuals to get tested and treated. One of the consequences of the pandemic is that many of those individuals, these disease intervention specialists, became SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 contact tracers. They're trained to do this, and they're very good at it. But as we transition them away from the sexually transmitted disease tracking, there was less ability to track those individuals. Another issue, particularly with chlamydia and gonorrhea, is that it requires a swab. And the swab manufacturers converted to making swabs for COVID-19. So there was a while, there was a shortage of swabs to test for uh, sexually transmitted infections like chlamydia and gonorrhea. We don't think that sexually transmitted infections changed very much during the pandemic. So certain human Behaviors uh, remained. Well,
0: what hasn't changed with COVID? Anything?
3: So interesting. The one thing that may not have changed is pregnancy. Um, so the CDC estimates that during 2020 there was a four percent decline in pregnancies. With Quest Diagnostics data, we can look at something called the obstetrics panel, which is typically ordered at the first prenatal visit, to predict what might happen fundamentally seven, eight months later. So we can look at what's likely to happen in 2021, because we're well past that point that we can look at the entire year of 2021. So our data does support approximately a four, four and a half percent decline in pregnancies in in the year 2020. Now, prior to that, if you look at 2017, 2018, 2019, there was a 1.7% decline in pregnancies each year. When we look at our 2021 data, what we see is a 1.7% decline in pregnancies. So there was a little dip in 2020 in pregnancies, and now it looks like the pregnancy rate reverted back to the pre-pandemic trend of approximately a 1.7% decline per year. So good news is that the... uh, Pregnancy trend reverted back to the historical norm.
0: So we've been declining in terms of pregnancies.
3: Yeah, we used to have, uh, uh, back in 2010, I think we had 4 million births in the United States, and uh, we are now at the range of about 3.6 million for for the year 2020 and still declining.
0: And now we have a situation where basically... Half of of Americans have been vaccinated. Many adults have been vaccinated and it's changing what people are prepared to do. Perhaps they're ready to go back to the doctor. Perhaps they're ready to go check out their uh, their their concerns that they said I'm not going anywhere with during this pandemic. When will we see that? How will we see that they're going back?
3: Through Quest Diagnostics, we'll be tracking numbers, but many other organizations are also tracking numbers as well. But I don't think that's going to be enough because we have a gap in care during the pandemic. And so there's going to be a tsunami of people who are going to present with more advanced disease, require more aggressive therapy, and unfortunately be at higher risk of death. And so the healthcare system has a supply issue. There's strong demand, but in economics, we talk about demand and supply. We've got this strong demand. We need to change the supply side to accommodate this demand. And so telemedicine was a fantastic uh, boon during the pandemic. And we have have learned that it works for many people, but not all, um, And some people, it's the audio component is the way to do it without the visual aspect. It doesn't replace in-person physical exams and other things that occur in person, Um, but it's definitely a great supplement and complements medical care. We're relying more and more on non-physicians, particularly pharmacists, nurses, and other health professionals to deliver necessary care, but we still need to get... And engage people in in other ways. One is these twenty four seven, I'll call them hotlines that provide medical support to people uh, for both physical health and mental health. Um, we can't underemphasize the need to deal with the um, burst in mental health issues during the pandemic, as people were um, limited to their homes and dealing with their children and spouses and partners and dealing with elderly and uh, their extended families. Um, so that's an important aspect. But we need to do more to engage people from uh, getting sick. In other words, uh, transition more to well care um, and to add to the sick care system that we have with hospitals, clinics, and, and physicians.
0: These tests require good specimens, good physical specimens, and they have to be collected in very good conditions, and they have to be preserved in very good conditions. I'm having a hard time believing that a lot of these tests can just be done at home and popped in the mail.
3: So some
0: specimens can
3: be shipped uh, at room temperature and survive, uh, even with the... uh, summer heat or the winter cold. Um, Some need packages to preserve the specimens in different ways. Um, So there's a lot of specimens that can be shipped uh, and preserved for, for hours and days uh, without any impact on the quality of the specimen. Um, One of the things that we learned during this pandemic is to be creative. And there's one, uh, Example, which I'd like to highlight, which is a, a partnership that we have with Walmart and a company called Drone Up, and together we work to deliver test kits uh, to people in particularly rural areas. Uh, and the two pilots, one was in North Las Vegas, the other one was in a um, city in a, a town in New York, uh, where the first two pilots where we delivered through drones packages to people's homes. So there's a way to deliver packages. There's also the same drones could bring things back. The key is that these new innovations like drones can deliver drugs uh, to people who can't get out of their homes. Uh, They can deliver groceries and other essentials to people who cannot travel.
0: Well, Dr. Kaufman, you are a font of information. (laughs) I want to thank you for coming in. I hope you'll come back and see us again.
3: Absolutely. Thank you. and Thank you to the listeners.
0: Dr. Harvey Kaufman is the Senior Medical Director of Quest Diagnostics. More information is available at questdiagnostics.com. I should say that while researching this interview, I realized that there was a true shift in our relationship to medical diagnostics. In the past, if you wanted a test, you made an appointment with a doctor. If you had a doctor, a physician was often your only connection to medical diagnostics. Dr. Kaufman and I did talk about how many people have been delaying going to the doctor or putting off testing. For some, this was simply a matter of staying put. Others lost their medical insurance when they lost their employment. And others, while concerned with a new suspected condition, have no relationship with or desire or ability to contact the formal medical establishment. As I researched the Quest Diagnostics website, I discovered all manner of tests could be ordered directly by any of us. This is called Quest Direct. While some are at-home tests, others require a visit to a patient service center, Perhaps a blood test is called for. The purchase of the test and the selection and scheduling are all handled online. No doctor visit. There are the expected COVID tests, as well as those we can get over the counter, such as a pregnancy test. But what really intrigued me was the long list of tests we don't generally think of as being accessible to us without a visit to a doctor. There are the routine cholesterol tests, for example, and some of the tests are specially grouped for men's health or women's health. More interesting still are the tests for conditions that we might worry about, but not enough to make an appointment with a doctor. There are tests for diabetes risk, at-home colorectal cancer screening, the presence of H. pylori bacteria, gout, and Lyme disease. Allergy tests were extensive, food allergies, tree nuts, weed and grass, indoor respiratory allergies, and seafood and shellfish allergies. Oh yes, there was a drug screen for both illegal and prescription drugs, and many for sexually transmitted diseases. Poignantly, there was also an option for women to test for a complement of STDs, which should be identified prior to becoming pregnant. The pandemic has accelerated the use of telemedicine, but an essential part of that is access to the technology of diagnostics. Quest and other reputable diagnostics companies are now offering all manner of tests to individuals. If you have a worry about your health, this might be a good first step. Ever experience pain in your knees or joints? How about lower back pain and the like? And then there's osteoarthritis. Mike Clayman is the CEO of Flexion Therapeutics in Burlington, Massachusetts. Mike, welcome back to Biotech Nation.
4: It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Maura.
0: Now, I'm saying Flexion Therapeutics. It's how I introduced you. And it's spelled F-L-E-X-I-O-N, Flexion. And Flexion means something. What is that?
4: It, it does, Moira. It means bending a joint, um, f- flexing the knee, flexing at the elbow. Um, it's movement. And uh, what we're doing at Flexion Therapeutics is developing medicines that can make a difference for patients so that they can flex and their joints without pain, and without um, functional compromise. In fact, more broadly, what we're focusing on is osteoarthritis, particularly of the knee, uh, post-operative pain, and low back pain. And we're approaching this with local therapies so to avoid the risk of systemic side effects.
0: Now, if you ask around, How's everybody flexing these days? You'll get a lot of sorry stories. You know, my, my knee hurts, my shoulder hurts, my hip hurts, my back hurts. Um, Can you help these sorry people? who seem to be surrounding me everywhere.
4: <laughs> we, you know, we proceed with a lot of compassion for the people who suffer from osteoarthritis and, and other ailments that compromise their ability to do what they want to do. Uh, and we certainly can help um, patients with knee osteoarthritis, which is probably the most common form of uh, osteoarthritis and, and probably the most common form of compromising function of the lower extremity. There are 15 million patients who see their physicians each year for osteoarthritis knee pain. Five million of those patients leave those visits with a knee injection. Injections into the knee are very common and the most common um, class of medicine that gets injected into the knee are steroids, so commonly referred to as cortisones. None of those steroids are formulated for extended release. So they're injected into the knee, they flood out of the knee, and the pain relief that a patient gets, which is typically reasonably good, is of short duration, on average anywhere from two to six weeks. And because these steroid injections are not done any more often than every three months, we recognize that there was a built in unmet medical need there and we then took that observation and created what is now Zoretta a commonly injected steroid but formulated so that it pays out in the joint at therapeutic concentrations for at least 3 months and confers pain relief of 3 to 4 months
0: and that's on the market
4: that that is on the market we we took it from concept uh, on a clean sheet of paper to Um, clinical candidate to submission to the FDA and approval approved in late 2017 on the market since. um, And I have to tell you, Maura, that the stories we hear from patients, the anecdotes that regularly we receive um, speak to the powerful influence of Zoretta on pain relief, functional improvement, and quality of life. Uh, So many patients have written to us to tell us how much of a difference Zolreda has made in their ability to do those activities that give their life meaning and uh, improve their quality of life. So we're very gratified with uh, how well the product is performing in the market in patients who really deserve better and longer pain relief than they currently can otherwise obtain with uh, other products.
0: Well, you can hear about Zilretta and read about it in the standard press. You know, we like to focus on what's coming down the, the pike here. Yes, And you're working on two different kinds of therapies for two situations. Let's go there. The first of all things is a gene therapy uh, and having to do with osteoarthritis in the knee. Let's talk about that. What is that? What are you trying to do there?
4: So this is also an injectable into the knee for patients with knee osteoarthritis. And the the, the overarching idea is by injecting this gene therapy, uh, uh, a so-called vector, the what happens is the gene therapy is taken up by the cells lining the joint, and it creates from those cells factories that produce anti, a powerful anti-inflammatory protein that suppresses the inflammation that very typically underlies the pain of knee osteoarthritis. This approach, based on the preclinical data, suggests that a single injection could continue to express this protein for at least a year or more. And this was originated um, in the lab of Dr. Brendan Lee at the Baylor College of Medicine. This protein is not made unless inflammation is present in the joint. It has a special sensor built into the, um, into the gene therapy that only allows the protein to be expressed when it senses inflammation. So you can think about this as on-demand anti-inflammatory effect. We are in the midst of clinical trials for this gene therapy. And by the end of the year, we expect to know whether it works, whether it does what we expect it will do in terms of relieving pain and improving function and potentially slowing disease progression.
0: I want to point out to people of how your body works in response to situations happens all the time. When you eat something, your uh stomach, your system produces leptin which starts getting into leptin receptors in your brain. And this is when it's all filled up, that's how you know you're full. We are full of sensors that sense situations and produce particular proteins given the situation we're in. So this is very similar to how our bodies work naturally. Yes. And here you are providing this, a gene that will go into the cells locally and say, so, oh, inflammation, uh, we're going to produce anti-inflammatory proteins, no inflammation, we're just going to sit here and, and proceed about our business. So it's actually very similar to how our body works naturally.
4: I think that's a, a terrific analogy, Moira. And I think the, what is so interesting about this gene therapy is that uh, Dr. Lee and colleagues took the concept of your body responding to a circumstance and delivering a protein that helps um, in a feedback loop sense. That's exactly what they created here. And uh, it, it would have been easier to create a gene therapy that just mindlessly poured out this anti-inflammatory protein, whether your body needed it or not. But by putting the sensor into the the gene therapy, it created the opportunity to do smart delivery of the anti-inflammatory protein.
0: So this isn't all you're working on. You're working on something that has haunted everyone who's ever had a knee replacement or a knee operation. And that Initially, you have the knee operation and things are good for a couple of days and then it wears off and the real pain hits. Let's talk about what you're working on there.
4: Yes. So I just want to point out, Moira, that everything we're working on is of a non-opioid nature. We're developing treatments that might create options for prescribing physicians and patients that do not involve opioids. And opioids are very commonly used following surgery. If you could do something like block the pain by injecting something around the nerve, that would control the pain for a prolonged period of time on the one hand, and also allow your ability to use your muscles normally, that would be really an advance for the field. When somebody has uh, surgery, particularly surgery on on their limb, a total knee replacement for example, it is very common that um, as part of the uh, operative preparation, an injection is made around the nerve that supplies that knee uh, so that you can block pain transmission signals. That's called a peripheral nerve block. And currently, the only peripheral nerve blocks that are available are nerve blocks that last three days or less in terms of controlling post-operative pain, but also um, tend to impair your ability to use your muscles afterwards. So they're not just blocking pain transmission, They're blocking motor fibers. And we looked at that, and our scientists constructed an approach that would actually have the potential to give longer pain relief and also preserve your ability to use your uh, muscles after surgery. And that's of substantial importance because if you've had your knee replaced, What your physician will want to do is get you out of bed the next morning to begin rehabilitation. And if your motor function isn't right, if your muscles aren't working right, your ability to comply with that rehab immediately after surgery is also going to be very challenged. So our goal with this peripheral nerve block is to give um, at least as good, good um, duration of pain relief, possibly better than what exists out there, and also enable your muscles to work normally while controlling your pain after surgery.
0: Is this another injectable?
4: It is. We take a blocker of the nerve of interest and we mix it with a special formulation that is liquid at room temperature and gels within a minute after being injected in the body around the nerve that you want to block. And the beauty of that is that then creates a depot where the, the drug that is blocking that pain transmission pays out locally at therapeutic concentrations for a prolonged period of time, giving you that three to five days worth of pain relief. And this, what, what is, um, What is going on now with that product is it is in clinical trials. It's being evaluated in patients undergoing bunionectomy surgery, which is a very painful surgery. And we will know by the end of the year whether this approach and this product um, works in terms of the clinical data um, that are being generated in that clinical trial.
0: Now, I can imagine... With someone with an intact knee, you know, kind of getting in there where it hurts. When you have a knee replacement, do you? Where do you? Where do you inject this?
4: Well, when you, if you're undergoing surgery to have your knee replaced, um, the painful part is all of those tissues around the knee that have been cut on Uh. and um, now are in the process of recovering from that surgery. And you can isolate the nerve that supplies those tissues. Um, and if you can block that nerve effectively, as we've been discussing, that's a path to controlling pain following the replacement of your knee.
0: You still have the nerve. You may not have some of the yeah. some of the part you, that flexes. The bony but you've parts got the may be
4: gone, but the pain is not.
0: <laughs> the pain does not go away. The pain Correct. does not go away. This is very exciting, uh just learning about this. And I have to say that with with the idea of all of the the drugs people have that uh uh you know that that you have to go through your whole system to find this one spot to fix it's it's uh it's a it's a great idea to have the uh, it's like where does it hurt we're going to fix it right there yeah. and minimize what's going on in your system and i guess that's really part of your signature that that's what you do
4: yeah, I would say that our my co-founder and I, Dr. Neil Bodick and I, when we started the company, um, had seen, we had been at Lilly for, in aggregate, um, 35 years in, in drug development. And we had seen so many promising new drugs fall by the wayside because there was an a, unanticipated side effect as a result of having to give the drug by a pill or intravenously, so you expose the whole system to that drug. And the idea that you might do some good for patients by locally applying your treatments, giving the drug its best chance to work locally, where the pain is, where the disease is, and avoiding systemic side effects, we thought that was a very compelling approach to new drugs, and that became the mantra for the, for the entire company. A focus on osteoarthritis, post-operative pain, low back pain, all through local therapies that give you the opportunity to avoid the safety issues that sometimes attend medicines that are given um, throughout the bloodstream.
0: Well, you got a lot of lot of work ahead of you. You get some news coming up in the short term. I hope you come back and see us soon, Michael.
4: I can't wait, Moira.
0: Mike Klayman is the CEO of Flexion Therapeutics in Burlington, Massachusetts. More information is available at flexion. That's F L E X I O N. Flexiontherapeutics.com. Fortech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn.
1: TechNation Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Landcorn.